Good evening, listeners. It is the 30th of July, 2017, and you're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's currently just after 7 p.m., and on Sunday, that can only mean one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Adrian Gallo. And I'm Kristen Finch. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here at Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories from one of those students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find find out about all the awesome things happening at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our upcoming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show or those of the hosts and their guests do not necessarily represent OSU or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Josh Pettit from the Department of Forest Ecosystems and Society. Welcome, Josh. Thank you, folks. Nice. Well, thank you for coming on. And, um, you know, how about you tell, tell us just, you know, initially a little bit about what it is that you do in the College of Forestry and within the Department of, of Forest Ecosystems and Society? Sure. Yeah. I'm actually in my fifth year, that's dangerous to say around these parts, <laughs> of, my, of my PhD, trying to finish that up this fall. And I'm a social scientist, and I kind of look at uh, the broadest kind of way to look at it is the human dimensions of natural resources. So essentially how humans behave, uh, environmental behaviors, and how to understand those and change those if necessary. So So this brings up two interesting points because from from many scientific perspectives, we're still trying to understand what's happening to ecosystems and to the natural environment. And then you are adding in another layer of not only – you know, what is happening to the natural environment, but how do people perceive those changes or those influences? Exactly. It seems really difficult. <laughs> it is. It's uh, one of the things my advisor likes to say. Uh, he teaches a stats course in the department, and he says that it's, you know, people talk about hard science versus soft science. And he says that it's actually harder to predict the human brain because we're such crazy creatures. So that, that's a, a canned response I use often. So take that other science. Yeah, take that hard science. <laughs> well, Josh, so how? what specifically about human behavior are you trying to measure? Yeah, well, I'm actually, um, if you're talking about just my interests in general, we're looking at sort of risk perceptions, attitudes, how those things feed into behavior. And, you know, because in terms of human behavior, it's a hard thing to measure because it's hard to kind of predict what people are going to do. So you can generally only actually measure behavior itself, you know, in the past. So we try to look at things that lead to behavior. Uh, the most proximal uh, cognition is behavioral intention. So, you know, we could ask you, like, what do you plan to vote in a certain way for this measure? And then we measure ways to, um, you know, I might ask you, if you, pl- if you think you'll vote for it or against it, how certain you are, you'll do that sort of thing. Or you're, you can actually measure these things a bit more indirectly through measuring folks' attitudes and their risk perceptions and kind of try to guess what those will uh, pan out to in terms of behavior. But my dissertation research looks at um, the use of genetic engineering for forest restoration. And in terms of the behavioral component of that, looking at how what people's behavioral intentions are, what their attitudes toward using that technology are for that purpose and that sort of thing. So. And we can really get into the weeds on, uh, from the social science perspective of what the differences are between attitudes and behaviors and what you had described as behavioral intention. I think there's a lot of good stuff to get to there. But before we get to that point, 
um, what what ex- what kind of ecosystem or you know what kind of um, kind of behavior are you, are you really identifying, and what exactly is it that you're trying to understand of how people think about th- a particular subject? Yeah, so um, the the behavior in this context is kind of a hypothetical situation. If we're talking about my dissertation research, it's basically how would people vote given the opportunity for the you know to use certain types of genetic engineering for restoring the American chestnut. And you know if so, it's kind of in the weeds a little bit in terms of. <laughs> Of a specific behavior, it's not as clear cut as like recycling or something. You know, if you look in the the social psych literature, uh, the environmental psych literature, a lot of that's like how do we promote folks to make more environmentally responsible behaviors. So, my dissertation research doesn't necessarily fall in line with that super well. It's more of looking at the underlying cognitions that would lead to someone hypothetically behaving in a certain way. So. I'm sure that's very exciting and clear. So, for example, the the American chestnut, uh, why or what type of response would be in this way analogous to recycling? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. I mean, it's really you're kind of just looking at it before uh, it's the, the behavior that would determine the feasibility of restoring the tree. So it's not an actual behavior related to going out to look at American chestnuts or eat chestnuts that are produced from the American chestnut. At this stage in the research, it's about restoring it. So it's actually about, if we're looking at the behavioral component specifically, it's would you vote for legislation that would allow this technology for this purpose? So that's kind of, it's not as sexy as one would hope. <laughs> Can you give us a quick primer as to why we would even want to restore the American chestnut? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, the American chestnut is sort of one of those historic keystone species in eastern U.S. forests. So it was important for habitat in terms of wildlife, but also uh, a high-quality timber product as well due to its rot resistance and some other characteristics. But really it was just this iconic giant in the forest. Like you can see some old photos from – the early 1900s or even older. And some of these fully grown American chestnuts are like the size of, you know, sequoia or redwood. Whoa, you see them they in, get that big. Yeah, you see pe- like the workers standing there and there's like two dudes standing there and, you know, they're not covering a tenth of the circumference wow, of the tree. Tiny. It's just incredible. So, and I don't think you could Photoshop back then. As far as I know. So it's <laughs> so, got to be legit. So these American chestnuts had multiple methods of utilization, and they were ubiquitous. But you said they were. You said past tense. So, you know, what's the extent that they are currently around? Yeah, um, they're they're not many around, uh, at least in their adult healthy form. Uh, you can you can find a, a few isolated stands around the country, but for the most part. Over 98% of them have been uh, wiped out due to chestnut blight, which is a fungal pathogen, um, which I'm sure we'll get into. 98% of kind of the original home range Mm -hmm. has since been wiped out. Yeah, and you can see some shrub American chestnuts. They'll they'll grow to a certain state, but then they're basically unable to grow beyond a certain state before this fungal pathogen uh, destroys their nutrient transport processes, essentially. So. So they can't reproduce and like sustain or build new population exactly. at this point. Okay. Yeah. They can't get big enough to be utilized for timber. They can't get big, big enough. enough to be habitat, really. You know, maybe some 
snacking by some herbivores, I imagine, would still be occurring, but that's not, you know. So then chestnut blight and mm-hmm. the restoration of this tree would, I mean, we've had a bunch of plant pathology folks on and they've told us a, about a lot of different methods, but what are some of the methods uh, that have been proposed to mitigate chestnut blight and restore the American chestnut? <clears throat> yeah, so they've tried a host of uh, methods ranging from just traditional silvicultural stuff, you know, um, selective breeding, uh, hybridization, crossbreeding, those sorts of things. And then just, you know, isolation, pesticides, et cetera, all those sorts of things. And most of those techniques have been largely unsuccessful at enhancing mitigation Hmm. or resistance, I should say. Um, But they've also been trying a host of biotechnological uh, interventions as well, and those have shown a bit more promise. Uh, Most specifically, uh, transgenics using the bread wheat genome, inserting a gene from bread wheat into the American chestnut's genome, and that's been quite successful at enhancing resistance. That's kind of the main success story, if there is one. So that sounds like some sci-fi action, right? You just like splice in a gene from bread wheat into this American chestnut tree genome. I could see maybe people being uh, uh, hesitant Mm -hmm. to go to that sort of extent, but what would be their motivation for doing so? For... For like, what kind of success rates could they maybe expect if yeah. they did go through the trouble of transgenics? This is all in the laboratory stage at this point. Some work out of SUNY uh, Syracuse and some other universities, um, and some of the data that I've seen have shown upwards of like seventy to eighty percent re- enhanced resistance, um, and that's not universal. But one of the main issues with this stuff is that uh, the use of it in the field is so restricted that, you know, it's hard to kind of know how they would do in in a natural setting because the regulatory environment is kind of um, restrictive to the point where it's hard to actually have field trials. And and then these are such long-lived species that it's hard to kind of predict 100 years down the road what's going to happen. So there are some, you know, concerns out there about, um, yeah, sort of do the the salmon tomato hybridization uh, <laughs> genetic engineering thing kind of scares folks, and I think you know when you look at GE from more distantly related species, it's a bit scarier for folks than if you were to you know have an Asian chestnut species in the American chestnut, for example. So this is where I see that where the rubber meets the road from a laboratory perspective. You know, scientists are in our little ivory tower, and we find a way to you know keep this American chestnut or keep the American chestnut blight from affecting, you know, these American chestnut trees. They can, you know, grow big. So scientists in our ivory tower and our laboratory say, that's awesome. Let's put it everywhere. Mm-hmm. Except one from a regulatory standpoint, not as easy as it may be, but also from a, from a social perspective, people have to accept and be willing to understand the science behind it, but also its implications of, you know, it's, 100, 200 year ecological impact. Mm -hmm. And this is where you really come in of trying to understand, you know, what people think about these new technologies or, you know, these behaviors. So can you give us a little insight into what you found so far? You know, Mm -hmm. like you had mentioned, those species closer to each other, 
people are more likely to accept if they are, you know, yeah. genetically spliced together and modified. But further sure. away, eh, not so much. Yeah. So, I mean, there's not a lot of research in the context of forest conservation. So that's another kind of issue here is that the the, the motivation or the use behind this is sort of a uh, – the public benefits. It's not like a corporate benefit or something like Monsanto. Folks tend to mm-hmm. think of that when you talk about GMOs and that sort of thing. So I think that's important to recognize too. This is kind of just a new area of research using this kind of controversial technology, if you will, for conservation. So it's a bit different. Not that it hasn't been used at all for that, but it's kind of in the context of forestry. It's, it's a new use. So... Can you please repeat the rest of your question? <laughs> so I, I guess, uh, you know, what, what were some of your initial findings from yes. the – and maybe you should describe a little bit your methods regarding yeah. know, how you asked people these questions. Sure. So, yeah, in social science, if you're doing quantitative research, which is what I do, it's generally uh, surveys, which folks love to fill out. Very, <laughs> it's very easy to get people to fill these things out. I hope you folks can <laughs> sense my sarcasm. Um, so, yeah, sending out a national mail survey – uh, to folks and then hounding them when they don't respond and then hounding them again when they don't respond. Um, and then you get them to answer questions with scales within them that you can then compute into indices and test the reliability and validity of the measure and make sure that you're actually measuring what you think you're measuring and that sort of thing. And so that's the, the short of it. Uh, it's via surveys. Mm-hmm. And the, the component of the study that I have results for at this point is, is kind of the first paper of my dissertation, and it's kind of a, more of an exploratory study looking at the different drivers of, of people's attitudes towards these different uses of GE. And and again, GE is genetic, genetic engineering. engineering. Yeah. And as, as I was saying, that there's not a lot of research in the context of forestry, so we had to look at other fields, so um, GMO foods, agriculture, um, industrial forestry, stuff like that, plantation forestry, but not a lot of stuff that was you know, 100% analogous. So we kind of looked at drivers of attitudes toward GE in those other contexts, plugged those into our survey, and then did a little bit of comparing between contexts. But mostly this, you know, first component of my paper is kind of exploring just what are the significant drivers, if you will. And then when you chuck all those drivers into a model controlling for the other drivers, what are the ones that stay important, if you will? That's a dangerous word yeah not not, <laughs> not my advisor's favorite word yeah, not practically important. <laughs> <laughs> but um what trends were you or have you been able to pick up any general trends in how people are feeling about this yeah so for one thing it's, it seems that a lot of folks don't even know about the american chestnut or chestnut blight so that's been a major issue is that uh the salience of this issue is not very high so folks aren't you know, if you, it, make, it makes sense the tree in its adult, robust form hasn't been around for over 100 years, essentially. And this is good to point out because mm-hmm. this means that people that, you know, even if they've lived on that plot of land for their entire life, they have never seen an American chestnut. So that they, exactly. they can't really even connect the dots as to why this even matters because they've never seen it. That's a very good point. And actually what we did initially in the survey design is we oversampled in eastern states that had been uh, major – habitat for the American chestnut, thinking that there might be differences in those responses because people would be more familiar with the topic, that sort of thing. And we found no differences between those groups. So that mm-hmm. tells you even folks, you know, where there may have been chestnut trees on their property 
historically, you know, weren't really aware of, of the tree itself or the issue of chestnut blight. So, What else were you able to, to discern? Yeah, it seems like um, some of the major drivers uh, we've been finding have been, and this is kind of analogous to those other contexts, uh, fields, if you will, risk perceptions and benefit perceptions. So the extent to which an individual feels that uh, using GE for this use is going to either pose a risk or a benefit to both the humans or the environment. So we teased out those two different uh, risk targets is what they're known as. Because people, you know, the literature tends to show that if you ask people about risks to themselves versus risk to their family, friends, or risk to society in general or to the environment, these different risk targets, that people will tend to respond differently in terms of, you know, favorability, for example. So we found that basically with, with this use of GE, it's the environmental benefits that seem to be uh, driving things and also environmental risks, not so much personal risk or human risk, which is in those other fields, uh, GMO foods, for example, it tends to be more folks. I mean, they're concerned about the environmental risks as well, but it's more of a visceral concern that you're going to be eating those things and then it might actually directly influence your health. So it's a bit of a different beast altogether. So maybe people who perceive some kind of environmental benefit from the restoration of American chestnut would think, oh, that's going to be another timber tree maybe, or this timber resource will be made available that hasn't been available for 400 years. Sure. Or the habitat component, it could be, they could just picture in their head squirrels and everything else frolicking (laughs) and healthy adult American chestnuts. Lots of chestnuts. Yeah, in preparation for the episode, I did do some research on the American chestnut, and I heard people say that when it was chestnut season, you could just go up to a base of a chestnut tree and just, like, scoop up, like, two (laughs) double handfuls of chestnuts. Like, that's how plentiful they were. I bet it would be just, like, a squirrel mania. Oh, yeah. Squirrel (laughs) squirrel paradise. You would, like, fighting the squirrels for your chestnuts. Yeah. And if you're just joining us, we're speaking to Josh Pettit from Forest Ecosystems and Society, and we're uh, we're talking about you know piles and piles of chestnuts. Uh, but but really, <laughs> we're trying to identify, and we just described you know some of the major players of of how people think about restoration of the American chestnut, especially if they've never seen the American chestnut. So so my next question actually is, you know. What is your sense, because you actually grew up in the Midwest where presumably there would have been some American chestnuts mm-hmm. in, in your area. So, you know, how, how do you view this from the scientist who is studying this? That's a, that's a good question. And honestly, you know, I'm just like the rest of them. I had never really known much <laughs> about it. I had heard of chestnuts, you know, from the uh, chestnuts roasting on an open fire song, which you guys <laughs> put in the blog very nicely. Um but yeah, I mean, I was unaware of it, of chestnut blight as well. So, you know, in the survey design, we had to kind of be very clear about how we described chestnut blight and how we described the different uh, potential interventions for mitigating it. So that was a real struggle in terms of the survey design mm-hmm. and the sort of upfront work that we had to deal with. And I'm thinking that, you know, more analogous, like more current day analogous issues that this study would also be applicable to would be like emerald ash borer or mountain pine beetle outbreaks, those sorts of things um, where, you know, folks are seeing it happening currently versus just being told about it happening a hundred years ago, that sort of thing. So I think you'd find uh, 
maybe some different results, but I think it's analogous for sure. That's a really good point of, you know, for some things that are currently ongoing, we, we may be able to have a stronger impact on the conservation side of things because it's still ongoing rather than a Monday morning quarterback type style. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and on that note, how did you come to the point of studying these, you know, kinds of behavioral ideas behind people was, you know, was, was conservation kind of always in your mindset or did you, you know, have some experience that you, that really pushed you outside of your comfort zone? Sure. Yeah. Well, I started out as an undergrad. Well, even before that, I was just always really into science more generally. My dad was the kind of guy who was always, uh, just, quizzing me on scientific facts like in the car on the way to the soccer game he would ask me how far the moon is or what's the speed of light and all these sorts of things so from an early uh, point I had sort of a respect for science and just the kind of the way the world works and that sort of thing but my undergraduate degree was in political science so I'm not really 100% in line with kind of where I'm at now but I started out as a as a natural science pre-med major and just just wasn't feeling that at the time, so I switched over. But I had some of the the prerequisites for that degree, and I always kind of had an interest in potentially going back. And basically, if, if we're honest, like what really inspired me to pursue natural resources—that's what I did my master's degree in—was David Attenborough and Planet Earth and uh, <laughs> Blue Planet, and just like interpretive uh, environmental interpretation and. And I had experienced that on several study abroad programs, but I felt that that was sort of analogous to, you know, teaching abroad, like, you know, experiential learning and environmental interpretation, that sort of thing. I can kind of see parallels between those things. And I was just inspired by that and um, just some really incredible professors that I had uh, during study abroad, and it kind of just wanted me to, you know, kind of made me want to, pursue education in that context just because of the uh, the environment of learning and just everyone's so excited about everything that they're doing and you know you can kind of see people weave their path out um, in real time even though it might not be a direct path so can you um, describe your first study abroad experience and what your life outlook was prior to that yeah yeah so I'm uh, my the first study abroad program, which I think kind of really kind of got my gears turning in terms of pursuing academics and, and just getting jazzed on higher education, was called Semester at Sea. It's this program where you sail around the world on a cruise ship. I mean, literally around the world. Yeah, you literally sail around the world on a cruise ship. <laughs> and uh, I think actually it was on this season of road rules back in like 2007 five or something like that. <laughs> so that's how people were like, when you would tell people about it back then, they'd be familiar with the road rules series. So that's how they knew it. But now it's a bit different, but and to give people an idea, you started off in Vancouver, went to Japan, to Hong Kong, Thailand, India, Tanzania, South Africa, Brazil, and then eventually landed back up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Yeah. Brazil, then Venezuela, then back to Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. Whew, yes. So. Yeah. Even I missed a couple. So literally around the world. Yeah. Yeah, and so that was a unique experience for sure. It was great. Um, I mean, every day you're at sea, you'd be sailing, you know, for the first leg. It was from Vancouver to Japan, so you're at sea for like two weeks straight. And you would have class every day while you're at sea, regardless of if it's a weekend or not. And then when you were in port, 
you would either do planned excursions or you'd be able to plan independent trips and or you could you could do whatever you wanted basically when you were in port but you were encouraged to you know do some cultural exchange essentially so and this is a small ohio kid who all of a sudden is (laughs) dropped off in japan and then three weeks later in india yeah i had never been out of the country at that point um so and you know it's not very common for folks from Ohio, from let me just say, unless there's any, in case there's any Cincinnatians listening, I'll say Western Cincinnati, just <laughs> not to offend the East Siders, but <laughs> it's not very common for folks from my neck of the woods to get out, uh, especially out of the country, and to kind of embrace that experience. So I, I really, luckily, just had good friends and my father, the the same scientific inspiration, um, was also in the Navy and a big proponent of traveling and was very supportive in terms of me trying to pursue study abroad. So really I have to give him the credit, you know, more than, more than anyone else. sounds like. So I should have told him about this. He could have listened to this. (laughs) We'll we'll, we'll send him the episode. Okay. Perfect. (laughs) So, so you weren't done with your travels. Then you also went to Costa Rica for six months after you finished your undergrad in political science, working for ecotourism. And then uh, can you tell us just a, a brief piece of that and then why you decided to continue on to a master's? Yeah. So really, I was just looking to live abroad um, after graduating just to, for the experience. So the ecotourism job, it was just a ghostwriting job you know, copy editing and that sort of thing, like writing very boring articles about ecotourism in Panama, (laughs) trying to get people to, you know, click onto these websites. So it wasn't very glamorous work. So it sounds a lot cooler than it it actually was. But at least you get to live. But I got to live, I got to live in Costa Rica in the jungle, like two blocks from the beach. It was, yeah. And I was making like $5 per article, (laughs) which was the equivalent of like, you know, eight dollars an hour but down there like the minimum wage was like two dollars an hour so it was pretty good in terms of just like living living wage so that was great yeah and but but doing that work and kind of being in that environment maybe more so than the job itself exposed me to kind of um, ecology i suppose because costa rica is a super ecologically uh, forward-thinking nation so I think that imprinted on me for sure. So when I got back to the U.S., I was kind of in a transition period, didn't know what I was going to do next, didn't want to live in Cincinnati. <laughs> so I moved up to Columbus, Ohio, and got a job for uh, at a restaurant, working like a farm-to-table kind of restaurant with, so really like ecologically minded, no waste, that sort of thing. So that's kind of, it's all these little things that kind of just nudged me back in that direction more so than any particular major event. So I decided, you know, that and Sir David Attenborough, as I said, which <laughs> actually when I was living in Columbus was when I was watching all those, huh. those documentaries and that sort of thing. And just had friends who were amped on it as well. So it was just kind of little things that guided me in that direction. And so. then so your master's degree actually took you to study abroad again in Panama and you got to do scientific diving as well? Yeah. So I did study abroad. I did a, like a tropical field ecology. I wanted to do my master's was kind of more in marine ecology kind of focus. Um, and I wanted to kind of beef up my marine ecology, marine biology experience. So I took this, uh, field ecology course at the Institute for Tropical Ecology and Conservation in Bocas del Toro, 
which is just a beautiful place, a tiny, like, chain of, it's an archipelago in Panama, like, huge old-growth jungle and, um, you know, beautiful turquoise waters everywhere. (laughs) Um, But I was down there initially for that, but then, you know, it wound up turning into uh, the field site for my master's research, which I did research on the long-spined sea urchin. Diadema <laughs> antelarum. Those are the crazy ones with like the super long, huh. aptly named long spines. The, <laughs> you know, ones you you wouldn't want to step on, basically. So, so I did that and was able to at the same time do an internship at a local dive shop, and I got my was able to get my dive master certification, and um, you know that kind of really stoked the fire on the marine ecology th- stuff as well, but. I realized that everyone wants to do marine ecology, marine biology, and all that sort of thing. So, um, tried to tried to pursue that, but it wasn't yeah. wasn't in the cards essentially. So then, what what led you to then after that? Somehow, you ended up in Oregon, yeah. in Portland. So again, when I moved back from Central America, I knew I didn't know much, but I knew I didn't want to live in Cincinnati. Um, <laughs> so I was looking at grad programs in marine ecology and related fields. And I looked at uh, a couple of faculty members at Portland state and just basically came out there, uh, just to check them out and just meet with them and check the town out and all that sort of thing. And realized that the faculty member I really wanted to work with didn't have funding for me. Mm. And I'd already had some debt from my master's degree that I didn't want to add to, but you know, so it really wasn't in the cards to start my PhD there. Um, which in retrospect, that would have taken me down just an entirely different path than I'm in now. But I loved Portland and I loved Oregon so much. I was like, I'm just going to move to Oregon. (laughs) So I just moved to Portland and then found a job uh, with the state parks department, actually, which is based in Salem. But I was able to find work doing survey research in various parks in the Portland and Oh, now it's all starting to turn full circle. (laughs) So you were doing survey research with the parks or the Oregon Department of Parks and Recreation. Mm -hmm. And so you, that kind of, did did, did that, did did, did that get the ball rolling for this survey work that you are doing now? It did actually. It, um, for a couple of reasons. One, my boss at Oregon State Parks was a collaborator with my current advisor and some other faculty members at Oregon State. So the surveys I was administering, little did I know, were designed by my future advisor and and another colleague of his. So I all I knew is that I was enjoying being outside in the park and I could see the, you know, the utility of the research, kind of figuring out who's using the park. Like there was a lot of diversity research within the surveys that I was administering, so the social justice thing I thought was cool as well, making sure people are being able to access these areas and how different groups are doing that differently and their experiences and that sort of thing. But I didn't know that I wanted to pursue that in a grad school context until my boss there had told me that he had these contacts at OSU. And then I basically just researched his contacts and was like, oh, okay, this, yeah, that stuff, I can see parallels in my interests with this line of research so i scheduled a meet a meet and greet if you want to call it (laughs) that's not what you should call it Uh, but came down and met with my current advisor and just hit it off immediately and uh, the whole time i think we just looked at his pictures from he's a 
professional wildlife photographer, so we just looked at his photos from all of his Africa trips and didn't really talk about much, but it was enough for him to <laughs> encourage me to apply afterwards. So, yeah, it's kind of a not a very direct path to where I'm at currently. Lots of zigzags but and lots of little things that kind of nudged the the direction throughout the journey. So, so then after you're done doing survey research for uh, – you know, perceptions of American chestnut restoration and or via transgenics, do you think your future will lead you along the same way? Or are you going to pick up on a different kind of survey research? Or do you think you'll do something completely different? That's a good question, too. You guys ask good questions. It's almost <laughs> like you you have a radio show or something. <laughs> um, Getting the hang of this thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, I don't really know, honestly. I'm kind of flexible. As you can tell in my background, I've got a very broad background, which is, I think, uh, points to just my uh, – I kind of just want to be in cool places <laughs> and, like, having cool experiences. So I'm kind of flexible in regards to that. But I, So I'm kind of location-driven at this point, really. Like, I'm open to postdocs or research in some capacity. I definitely enjoy that or teaching. Um, but I'm not going to – uh, go live in rural Mississippi or Cincinnati, or Cincinnati <laughs> for example. I wasn't going to say the yeah. did. <laughs> some Midwest state. Yeah, sorry, Midwesterners. To do that, yeah, I won't do. I won't do that. So I guess kind of my my the whole path has led me to realize that I won't move I won't, back. To yeah, I won't move back to the the start of the path. Essentially, so. you just want to follow the cool trail. I do. I do. I just yeah. the quality of life in other places is so much nicer. I'm gonna do cool stuff <laughs> and hopefully get paid to do cool stuff. Yeah. So I'm gonna pick like several places that I would want to live and then try to find work that appeals to me in those places and then move to one of those places. Just continue so, living the dream. I'm sure, my advisor, you know, he doesn't think I've been wasting his time at all. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, Josh, with your broad skill set and all kinds of experiences, like we skipped over your study abroad in Australia and Fiji and probably a couple other things that you didn't tell us. But nonetheless, I'm sure you're going to have a very successful career as you move away from Oregon State. But before you do, here on Inspiration Dissemination, we have two traditions. And one is that we ask you for some advice. So what is your advice and who is it towards? Yeah, that's a, that's. Um, I, I like that you guys do that. And I can't remember exactly what I what I quoted to you, but it was basically something along the lines of "Don't be afraid to um, to try new things," and 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 that could be in terms of employment or just allowing kind of these little you might think of as perturbations or bumps in the road, but really there might be detours that lead you to other opportunities you might not have considered a priori. So. I guess that's kind of my whole story. Um, so I'm saying, you know, be like me. Don't be fo- <laughs> don't be focused on one thing, and uh, just be a feather in the wind. And you just also see what happens. you sent us a quote, which I have oh, yeah. in front of me, so I can I can aptly remember it. But it is, whatever you are, be a good one, and that is Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. So, and that's only because I've you know I don't really know what I am. So <laughs> I've got to be okay with that. You're being a good, good Josh so far. Thank you. All right. So uh, the second tradition then is for you to provide us with a song to close, close out this interview. And uh, so what song did you pick and why? 
I picked a song by The Flaming Lips called Do You Realize? And it's just one of those songs that, I mean, besides it having a wonderful melody and being on one of the greatest albums of all time, Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots, <laughs> um, it kind of asks you some simple questions about perception, essentially. So do you realize that um, we're floating in space? Do you realize everyone you know someday will die? Uh, just simple questions that we often take for granted, but also could be looked at uh, via a scientific eye, I think, as well. So just a song that makes me think of perspective and, you know, that sometimes you got to uh, realize how insignificant or significant we are in the big picture. Very good. Well, this is Inspiration Dissemination. We are closing out our interview with Josh Pettit from Forest Ecosystems and Society. We are on every Sunday at 7 p.m. And uh, Josh, thank you so much for being on with us. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. And just a reminder to our listeners, we do not have a interview next week, but then we'll, we will be back on August 13th with, is that already August 13th? Wow. August 13th with Tyler Shapey from Botany and Plant Pathology. But until then, you can enjoy the rest of Inspiration Dissemination. We'll be here till eight playing music. And to start off this last set is Do You Realize by the Flaming Lips. It is a request from our guest, Josh Pettit. Enjoy. You heard it here on KBVR Corvallis. <laughs> 